primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 39. Would you listen now to the word of the Lord? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion of those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those that shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The word of the Lord. In 1940, when the Nazi war machine crushed the French army and caused the capitulation of most of the French government, a tank general by the name of Charles de Gaulle evacuated from France and became one of the first leaders of what would be famously known as the French Resistance. In his first radio broadcast from England, he said, Whatever happens, the flame of French resistance must not be extinguished and will not be extinguished. De Gaulle also warned that anyone who collaborated with the Vichy puppet government were, quote, pitiful traitors and would be punished. Not exactly what we would call a heartwarming message, but given the situation, it made sense. After all, collaborating with the new government might have meant safety for some, but your safety also might have meant the death of others. 
the French resistance, which eventually numbered nearly a half million resistors, took terrible losses. Over 90,000 were killed, tortured, or deported by the Nazis. The stakes were high, and so de Gaulle's rhetoric matched it. Now, our scripture in Hebrews today would be tough on any day, but, you know, Mother's Day makes it a little more awkward, so sorry moms, you know, it's not my pick, it was just where we are in the series, so we get to give uh, blame or credit for the Holy Spirit here. But of course, this would be tough on any day, because in the letter to the Hebrews, our likely author Apollos gives two major warnings full of stern and fiery language. The first was given in chapter 6, and the second here is given in chapter 10. And this is hard for us for a couple of reasons. First, if any of us have had religious trauma or grew up with fire and brimstone preaching, this preaching that we heard probably sounded like this not just sometimes, but most of the time. And Hebrews 10 was almost certainly quoted. So to hear it again might be instantly triggering for some of us, especially if this kind of language was used to develop in us not a faith of love, but a fearful obedience. However, the second reason is that we live in a culture that gets really uncomfortable with the idea of judgment from God. Now, again, part of that is because of people weaponizing it within religious communities, but also the part is that we simply don't enjoy the idea of being judged by God, especially if that judgment might be negative. As modern, typically left-of-center people, it just doesn't really do it for us. So when we get to these two lengthy warnings found in the letter to the Hebrews, we don't know what to do with them. Which, by the way, is why we like to preach through books of the Bible line by line. This is expository preaching. Because, look, if I had my choice, I would skip over this as well. The method of preaching here keeps all of us, including me, honest. Now, there are a few things about Apollos' methodology here that should put some context onto this. First, the way that Apollos writes this, scholars know that this was meant to be read as a sermon, not as a detailed letter. We also know that Apollos is using a highly educated classical Greco-Roman rhetorical style. So here's what that means. When it comes to his emotional appeals... We should not pay so much attention to what Apollo says as too much attention to how it is making us feel. You see, in this form of ancient rhetoric, the feeling of an argument was actually considered superior to the logic of an argument. This also means that for Apollos, particularly in these warnings... He is not giving us systematic doctrine. That is, he's not giving us a formal, integrated set of beliefs about God. Rather, he's using every rhetorical device in his toolbox. Why? Because the stakes for his congregation are that high. And his rhetoric needs to match it. But before we get there... It's important to unpack the verses that precede it. So let's get to verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Apollos will set up the dangers of abandoning the gospel by first talking about the goodness of the gospel. 
In terms of proportion, this far eclipses any warnings we might encounter. In fact, as we concluded last week, Jesus has done everything for us. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has given us unabridged access to God. He has abolished the burdensome system of religious rules and sacrifices and freed us from the crushing anxiety of a guilty conscience. So much so that if you are trusting in the work of Jesus, it is as God looks at you as if you were Jesus. This then is making up what Apollos calls a confession. A confession you might remember from previous weeks is not something you say you're sorry about, but rather it is something you believe that others will pressure you to renounce. And in the first century, everything about early Christianity threatened both the imperial Roman and institutional Jewish status quo. So there were plenty of people who were going to be strongly, if not violently, opposed to our Christian confession about Jesus. So, Apollos is going to tell his Hebrew Christian audience four things in order to stay strong under this increasing pressure. And all four of these things are just as applicable to our Christian community today. Let's go to verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, what four things do we see here? There's practice love, good works, meeting together, and encouragement. Now, this seems pretty straightforward, right? But there are two ways that we can misunderstand this command. The first of which is to think that by doing these four things, this is what makes me a Christian. That this is what makes me approved of by God. So, if I'm loving, if I do good works, if I go to church, if I encourage people, then I'm a Christian. So, basically, be a really nice person and then you can know you're a Christian. But remember what we've just established these past few weeks. There is nothing I can do to achieve the status of Christian. No amount of sacrifices, good works, or being nice that will make God approve of me. Jesus has done everything on our behalf. There is nothing left to add. It's important then to understand these commands as coming immediately following this kind of declaration. Because it demonstrates something crucial about the nature of the gospel. The Christian life is never about attempting to do enough good things to earn God's approval. The Christian life is responding to the good news that God already approves of me. When I experience the fullness of grace, my natural response should be to pass on the grace given to me. My natural response should be to be loving, to do good works, to go to church, to encourage people. Not to impress God, but to give thanks to God. Now the second way we can misunderstand this is to interpret this primarily as a requirement to go to church. 
There are a lot of people in our sermon creation group this past week that shared that they, they grew up in these mega churches or, or, or very pastor-centered churches. And the, and the pastor's overriding focus was when they got to this passage, they're like, this is about church attendance. But notice, the text doesn't say go to church. The text says meet together. Now, was Sunday worship most likely the gathering that Apollos had in mind? Probably. But was it the only kind of Christian gathering? No. And here's why I think he phrases it the way he does. Church attendance is not the point. Love, good works, and encouragement are. And I need to be wherever, wherever, people are coalescing around those principles and practices. Here's what that also means. If I believe that my church is coalescing around those principles and practices, I need to be there, no excuses. But if my church is not, then it doesn't matter how many times a pastor quotes this passage, I don't need to be there. And so it's important for us, every one of us, to ask, what am I getting out of this? Not in a consumeristic way, like, do I enjoy the music, or the sermons make me feel good, or the cheese is delicious at the community group or not? I mean, good cheese is important. But is my church challenging me to love God and people, to do good in the world, and encourage one another? And am I participating in that? Because if I am not intentionally engaged in my discipleship to follow Jesus, there are plenty of other forces in our culture that will be just as intentional in engaging me to follow them. Which takes us into Apollos' warning beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So if you're the anxious type, you might be a little concerned here about what the sinning Apollos is referring to. However, we don't know what exactly the sin is that Apollos was referring to. However, scholars say that it was likely either a grievous kind of harm that was committed with the awareness that it was harmful, or even more likely, this refers to abandoning the way of Christ to serve the enemies of Christ, which we mentioned last week are not people but systems of exploitation, bigotry, abuse, violence, and death. And so be clear, because I know someone's going to need this clarification this morning. This is not about struggles with sin. This is not about addiction. This is not about having doubts about God. I don't even think that this is about leaving church or Christianity. This is primarily about people who have betrayed the gospel and then are working actively to destroy the gospel itself. And so in light of that kind of sin, our preacher, remember this is a sermon, uses familiar Jewish examples and a rhetorical question. Verse 28. 
anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Parents, uh, you may have tried to do this with your children after they've done something you know is wrong. You, you ask them, all right, okay, what do you think your consequence should be? And of course, they like suggest like the, the most like softest, non-existent consequence ever, right? Um, Apollos here is doing something similar. He's saying, look, I'm not going to tell you what the consequence for apostasy is. That is the deliberate betrayal of Jesus. But you can make a guess by your own standards. And honestly, judging myself by my own standards would probably be pretty scary when I think how judgmental I can be. But following verse 30 and 31, I think are the really important truths. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So let me ask you, who should be the judge of the people that we feel like have betrayed the Christian faith? Myself or God? Or to put it another way, when we see Christians exploit the poor with a false prosperity gospel, when we see Christian nationalists use the name of Jesus to oppress and hurt people, when we see Christian leaders caught in abuse scandal after abuse scandal, who's supposed to take vengeance on them? Myself or God? You see, as strong as Apollos' rhetoric is, there are actually two comforts embedded here. One, it is not on you or me to take vigilante justice into our own hands, for we would be rarely qualified to do so. But two, God will hold all injustice to account. This is what it means when it says God is a living God. This is in contrast to a dead God, a, a human idol, a man-made myth. God is a living God and God sees all the people who have betrayed everything about the way of Jesus and says, I will repay them. I will judge them. And I know that for some of you who have been victims of abusive churches, or you've known victims of abusive churches, sometimes that might be the only comfort you have so that you don't give up your faith. God is still a living God. You see, even though Apollos' strong rhetoric of judgment is uncomfortable for most of us, even in this section, his goal is not to frighten, but to encourage. He doesn't want anyone to give up and so, because so much is at stake. And so he says in verse 32, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in prison. 
and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Y'all, I know a lot of American Christians these days want to say they're persecuted for their faith, but let's be honest, we're not. And to the extent on those rare occasions that we might be discriminated against, it pales into comparison what the Hebrew Christians here have already experienced. The Roman persecutions at this point in the first century haven't even started sending people to the lions yet, and yet many Christians have lost more than we could ever imagine experiencing ourselves, their families, their reputations. They served time in prison. They forfeited their homes. And it was entirely possible that the reason that they were arrested or lost their property was because someone from within the congregation gave up their faith, lied about them, or betrayed them, or both. This is why Apollos is so focused on encouraging them not to throw away the confidence that has carried them together this far. Because the hard reality facing this Hebrew Christian church was that their survival was intertwined with their solidarity. But Apollos knows they're tired, he knows that they're scared. Despite whatever encouragement he gives, they may feel that they do not have enough courage to take on the powers that are around them that are stronger, more numerous, and deadly. Maybe you've felt that way before. That even all the nicest words from all the nicest people can't seem to be enough to keep your heart going when every situation around you feels like it's trying to crush it. So what does Apollos point out when he has nothing left that he can say? He closes them with a reminder from Jewish scriptures once again about how God has already been faithful. Verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised. Yet for a little while and for coming one will come and not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Apollos quotes from the prophet Habakkuk, was our first reading this morning, who 700 years prior was speaking to a Hebrew people that was also tired and scared, tempted to give up their faith in the face of overwhelming odds. Apollos wants his people to know that though the challenges they are facing, the the temptation to despair that they are experiencing, that this is not new. They are part of a long line of people who have suffered as God's people. So what did Habakkuk say in the 7th century BCE to God's people that applies in the first century AD to God's people and can apply still today to the 21st century to God's people. That though it may feel like a long delay, God will come at the right time. You don't have to do much. Just don't 
shrink back. Don't let your fear and fatigue cause you to collapse in on yourself. God says, my righteous, my people will survive by faith. Just have faith. Just hold on. But hold on to what? Have faith in what? Not a what, but a who. Remember where we began today in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Jesus is whom we hold to when we feel like everything is wavering. Because Jesus is unshakable. Jesus is who we have faith in even when we feel like we are losing our own faith because Jesus is always faithful to us. Friends, hear this good news. You can be confident that we are not those who will shrink back from whatever threatens to crush us. Not because of our personal fortitude, but because we rush to Christ as our fortress. Not because we will persevere in our souls, but because Christ will preserve our souls. This is how we endure. This is how we will receive God's promises. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
It's fun having a big band up here today. Yeah. It's a big bunch. Yeah. Has spoken up very publicly uh, against a certain former president based <laughs> on my experience with him. And um, my heart is thumping right now telling y'all about yeah. this. And I will say that I could not have done it without the encouragement that I received here in Parkside because I had people from all over the country and my family, um, not my immediate family, but family nonetheless, sending me messages telling me that I was going to burn in hell and quoting the scripture to me. And being part of Parkside, you know, that's really hard, it's really scary. And so for me, my defense mechanism was do not respond. In day-to-day -day life, how do we respond to people that are telling us that we are going to hell because of the way we live our lives and the way that we speak out? Yeah. You know, the hard thing about this passage is, like, in the original context, their, their most likely persecutor, right, was a, a pagan Roman government. But sometimes for us, right, our, our biggest struggle, our biggest threat is not non-religious people, it's not atheists, it's not secular people, it's other religious people who are saying these things in the name of God. And that's, that's, that feels weird because it mm. seems like it's, these are the last people who are supposed to be doing this. Um, so I think your non-engagement approach is really good. Um, because I think it, it only fuels the fire, right, when you, we, we go back. But when you're hearing this stuff, it can be very discouraging. And so I think if you are experiencing this kind of discouragement in your life, particularly from people who are claiming the mantle of Jesus, I, I think it's important to run to other people who are followers of Jesus that you trust and know are safe and, and that support you. And, and to, for every bit of discouragement you receive, to run to and, and invite encouragement, both from the scriptures, but from the community and people to pray and, and support you. And I, I think, like, you just, you don't have to do it alone. And I think, and we, we have such a gift that I think we take for granted sometimes that we have a community that can support us. Um, so, yeah. All right. How can we stand before a God who turns people to pillars of salt? who is awesome in the true sense of the word and not have fear? <laughs> so I, I don't know how to take the question, um, <laughs> but I, I actually, so this, I, I think you should fear God. Now, again, we've talked about fear of God before, right? That's not, I'm scared of you, God. It's like when you see, when you see like thunder and lightning, you see the awesomeness, you see the power, you, you have a reverence. The rever reverence is the best correlation for this word fear, right? But the fear of God is the fear that displaces other fears. And this is why it's good, because as scary as anything else might be in the world, you're like, wait, no, God is bigger, God is stronger, God is more awesome. Uh, and, and so I don't need to fear these other things that might be coming for me, because God actually is more awesome than all of those things. And so the fear of God is actually a fear that can give you courage in the situations when you have other people who are, quote, scary in your life. All right, last question. So if God will take care of it, then should we just let people do as they will as long as we keep ourselves in the right? Great question. I'm so glad someone asked that because yeah. I, I remember like writing this out. I'm like, oh, okay. I wish I could do like a two paragraph, a joiner. <laughs> um, so it's important when we see injustice going on either within the church community or elsewhere, right? Vigilante justice is what we're, we're called not to do, right? Like, I'm going to take this into my own hands, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish this person, right? We are still called to be agents of justice, right? And when you read Paul's letters, he has lots of protocol for initiating justice within a church community. And so the key part is, right, that we, we do justice as a church community or as a civil 
citizen, right? Um, we don't do vigilante justice. And I think that's a, an important thing. So, you know, we don't just sit back and watch it happen and go, oh, well, God will take care of the bad guy later. Um, but we also don't try to take things in our own hands. Shameless plug for Cajun. Uh, you can ask Michaela how to get involved if you're interested. That's all the time we have for questions today, but there are a lot more that y'all have texted in. Thank you so much. Keep texting them in, and Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook. Yes.